Hey! Hey, you! Yeah, you listen to the Dirtbag Diary. It fits go How about a little noise, huh? Portion Victoria, June 7th. Hey all, my new car is older than I am. The owner manual lists the car's color as impact orange. It may be bright enough to cause collisions. I envision oncoming drivers shielding their eyes. I'm toying with the idea of naming the car Helga the Horrible. It's off to Perth for the two of us. It will be a miracle if we both make it. I worry more for Helga than for me. Think of you all, Fitz. That's me at 22 years old. I was about two months into a six-month trip through Australia. My only consistent traveling partner was a 25-year-old car with absolutely nothing classic about it. I named it Helga. During our three-month odyssey, she became the only constant in an existence of perpetual movement. I often found myself talking to the dashboard. It sounds bizarre, I know, but it turns out that this isn't that rare. A lot of us name our cars. In fact, in an informal survey conducted by the Dirtbag Diaries, we found that 83.5% of dirtbags named their vehicles. For some of us, our cars have become the equivalent of imaginary friends. They are our most dependable partners. Rightly or wrongly, we associate our vehicles with freedom, with independence, with being young. When we turn 16, our world suddenly seemed to expand. Now our cars often deliver us from our desks to ocean swells, to quiet trailheads. We stuff them full of gear, skis, and ropes, and they respond with all-night pilgrimages to mountains and beaches. Even as we come to terms with the fact that automobiles may be an unnecessary evil, it's hard not to think back to the first surf or climbing trip and daydream about open windows, loud music, and a best friend riding shotgun. Is there something eternal amongst all the spinning gears, grinding brakes, and screeching timing belts? Can a hunk of metal have a soul? What happens when the motor finally stops running? And let's say, for instance, a car accidentally gets driven off a 100-foot cliff into the Indian Ocean. Is there a heaven for beater cars? This week, we bring you the great big garage in the sky, the sometimes true tale of a 1974 Mitsubishi Sigma, a boy on the cusp of adulthood, and a life-changing journey across a continent. This is Fitzka Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. I tried desperately to get by without buying a car. For two months, I carried my entire world, tent, rock climbing gear, clothes, books, food, stove, and an enormous haul bag that weighed more than my spindly frame. I had been fortunate enough to win a Bonderman travel grant. This grant is as about as close as you can come to the fairy tale of the long lost millionaire uncle who suddenly appears to grant you your wildest dreams. In exchange for several thousand dollars, all I had to do was climb and write. I wanted desperately to see the Indian Ocean, not just glimpse it, but to awake with it smell in my nose. To see the massive swells propelled north from the Antarctic storms, I dreamed of wandering empty coastlines. I worked on hitchhiking. I trained my thumb like it were a muscle that could be worked into top form. 
Once or twice a week, I would make the long walk from the Mount Arapiles campground to the main road with an empty backpack and begin thumbing for Horsham and the nearest grocery store about 30 miles away. These trips often turned into all-day affairs, and more than once I ended up stranded in the tiny Natamook pub hoping for an empathetic climber to show. There are more than 20 million Australians. In the U.S., 300 million people inhabit roughly the same area. Australia's eastern coastal cities account for more than half the country's people. Outside this coastal strip, the population thins dramatically. Once I strayed from the standard tourist destinations, it got hard to hitch a ride. If I wanted to do more than just glimpse the Indian Ocean, I would need my own set of wheels. I asked around, and 10 days later, I got a ride with the local sheep farmer, Barry, into the Horsham Toyota dealership, where his nephew had a car that might just fit my budget. I was hoping for an old Toyota, nothing fancy. I told Barry's nephew my budget. His mouth hung open. We could get you a little bit more of the car if you came up with another $1,000, he pleaded. I shook my head. He shrugged, picked up a CB radio, and trying to hide his excitement, he half hollered, Charlie, bring the Sigma around. There was an immediate sense of urgency in the dealership. A mechanic arrived. The owner stumbled out of his office, surprised. Barry's nephew turned back to me and smiled. You're going to love the color, and I'll tell you what. I'm going to throw in the shag seats for free. 30 minutes later, I was the proud owner of a construction cone orange 1974 Mitsubishi Sigma. I paid for it with four crisp bills. The entire dealership waved me off. You think it will get me across the country? I asked sheepishly. Barry's nephew chuckled, shrugged, and told me, you can sure try. It took me three days to realize that my new car couldn't be put in reverse, at least not mechanically. From the dealership, I drove to the market and pulled to the empty curbside, filled the Sigma with groceries. I pulled away from the empty curve, drove 30 kilometers back to my camp spot, pulled into my parking place, and promptly went climbing for two days. Three days later, I fired the engine, threw it in reverse, and gunned it, only to hear an ear-splitting moan. The car lurched as if I backed straight into a tree, and then it died. I had to put the car in neutral and enlist the help of three German climbers. Parallel parking would be impossible. I would have to resort to pushing the car out of any parking spot. I reasoned this out and decided that being able to back up, although nice, wasn't altogether necessary. Ahead of me was a drive that roughly equated to following I-10 from the Atlantic to El Paso, but without the Texans, Louisianans, Mississippians, or Floridians. At certain stretches, hundreds of miles separate gas stations. This two-lane road is notorious for head-on collisions and the hordes of kangaroo that become roadkill. It contains the straightest stretch of road in the world, 90 miles without even the slightest curve or bend. I was about to get 60-odd hours of quality alone time. I needed a friend, and I named the four-cylinder Sigma Helga. Trouble began almost instantly. Every windshield made in recent memory contains a thin protective polymer sheet that holds the glass together. It protects occupants from projectiles and unlike a typical plate glass window, it keeps the glass from shattering upon impact. Apparently this became a requirement sometime after 1974. 
I learned this a week later when a softball-sized rock kicked up by a road construction crew went through the windshield and landed in the back seat. The windshield immediately splintered and began falling out all around me. In three minutes, I was covered with tiny beads of glass. It was raining. I drove the 15 kilometers to the nearest farming hamlet with raindrops smacking me in the face. Three days later, a replacement windscreen arrived. I left Port Augusta, the last significant sign of civilization for 2,708 kilometers on a cloudy Monday morning. The first hours crept by with dread visions of hissing radiators, abandoned gear, and smashed dreams. The oil light blinked incessantly, and then Tony appeared on the horizon, arm out, thumb up. I pulled over, threw cassettes and loose papers on the back seat, and swung the door wide open. How far are you going, he asked. As far as I can, I answered with a devious smile. Tony stared blankly. He pondered the impact orange finish. Within two hours of chatting, it became apparent that Tony was incapable of listening. He could hear perfectly fine, but there must have been a serious plumbing glitch between his inner ear and brain. 30 hours of driving and far few hours of conversation later, Tony would have to be reminded that my name wasn't Pete, but Fitz. Really? Aw, oh, you're messing with me. Pete, you're quite the kidder, he said, slapping me on the shoulder. Tony and I pushed forward, struggling to find conversation, and instead listened to the subtle variations in clinks, whines, and moans of Helga's 26-year-old motor. We passed through the tiny towns of Mundrabilia and Eucla, perched on the edge of a great continent. Towns that exist for no other reason than to supply petrol and greasy overpriced burgers to truckers. Drenched in light and unhindered by smog, awash in a brilliant blue sky and bordered by an unchanging horizon. Tony is hopelessly broke and living off nicotine and fruity granola bars. His credit card has been maxed out for two weeks, but every stop he gives it a whirl just in case. He racks up airtime on a plush cell phone, long, hideously mushy baby talk conversations to a girlfriend on the Gold Coast. After 20 hours of driving, we have no energy to commit an act of needless conversation. 70 kilometers slip by in silence, both of us lost in our own thoughts and not really interested in each other's. We crash out at 1 a.m. on a dirt car park 20 meters from the road. For five minutes in the creeping dawn light, I bask in a life without Tony, who's still wrapped in a thin sleeping bag glistening with frost, still snoring. I revel in the cold morning air, walking from one end of the car park to the other, kicking pebbles across the hard red soil licked by frost. Tony farts so loud he wakes himself up. Ten minutes later, we are crawling towards Perth. In Northam, 100 kilometers east of Perth, we stop for gas and more oil. Tony tries his credit card. I'm out of cash and sweet talk a 17-year-old girl into two cups of coffee. The rolling New England-style hills before Perth are Helga's final test. The motor sputters, churns, and heaves like a belly overwhelmed by coffee. I've just found God and am in full prayer mode. I think I would become undone if I had to spend one more night with the Tonemeister. I push the motor on the downhill sections and coast through the inclines. Car chokes. Doesn't sound so good, Tony notes. 
Ten minutes earlier, he digressed into a monologue about how I could double my money on the car if I put a little work into her. He had pronounced the motor mint, despite the fact that it drinks oil faster than petrol. But now, the motor didn't sound so good. No shit, Tony. Where have you been for the last 30 hours? Somehow we've made it to Perth, but the whereabouts of Tony's mythical best mate remain obscured. Lost, I wanted to scream. Who gets lost in their hometown on the way to their best mates? According to Tony, the town had changed a bit in three years. Four gas stations, a quart of oil, and a call to his friend later, we found ourselves on the opposite side of the river. Tony scratched his head. The next hour passed in a haze of traffic circles and driving on the wrong side of the road. After 20 solid hours, I had never been so spent. Tony eventually made it to his friends after I coaxed control over the road atlas. He offered me a spot on his friend's floor and a night on the town. I said goodbye instead and drove towards the ocean. For the next month, I spent most of my days hiking across lush vineyards towards remote cliff faces. I climbed almost entirely alone, sometimes close to the ground, sometimes not. Occasionally, I shared a scrap of conversation. Slowly, the bizarre calls of Australian birds became familiar. I learned to tell time by watching shadows traipse across rock. At night, I returned to empty campgrounds. I made dinner for one and nodded off while reading another book in the front seat of Helga. I bought a cheap fishing rod, wandered the coastline up and down from Perth. I celebrated my 23rd birthday by myself. Helga was hemorrhaging oil internally. The gaskets were shot. I was spending more on oil than I was on gas. Short of ripping out the entire engine and rebuilding it piece by piece, there wasn't much I could do. But I began to believe in Helga, the way you might believe in an older, cantankerous climbing partner who moves slowly in the morning, but is always there at the critical moments. Losing her at that stage of the trip would have been a catastrophe. It sounds ridiculous, but that car taught me one of the most important lessons in my life, something I had yet to learn at 22. July 28, Kalbari, Western Australia. 26 miles down a heavily potholed dirt road, the Murchison River cuts a deep hole in the earth known as Z-Bend. Two kilometers down that canyon, all my worldly belongings are tucked beneath a rock overhang overlooking the tidal river. 100 meters beneath our campsite, seven shiny quick draws hang from a giant wave of rock. They sway gently in the ever-present breeze. Rito, my Swiss climbing partner, refers to it as our unfinished business. It's been raining off and on. We climb when we can. We hike along the gorge and fashion crude spears out of tree branches in the vain hopes of catching fish. The water is slightly brackish and the tides are barely perceptible. Every morning after two cups of coffee and a little chatter, Rito and I look at one another, nod and mutter, time for business. We prepare for our repel from our cliff top campsite with the solemnness of workers headed for the mines. We clip in, look at each other, gear clatters. Then we descend into the gorge on the long nylon cord, ready for another day at the office. I'm millimeters away from completing the last desperate lunge of the route. Twice now I've hit the final hold, but watched unable to do anything as my feet and left hand slip and pry me from the wall like old plywood. I'm doing my best not to be discouraged, but the route has taken hold. This is no longer fun. In the end, it boils down to one move, one desperate lunge towards success. 
We are about to run out of stove fuel, and the water is running dry. It's time to return to civilization. Neither of us are quite sure what day of the week it is. Rito is saying Wednesday, but I'm hedging my bets on Friday. Thinking of you guys, fits. We can all come up with excuses. We can talk ourselves out of our wildest dreams, tell ourselves that the cliff face is too big to climb in one day, the swell too large to surf, the lifelong goal too improbable to realize. As people, we often tend to seek out situations and scenarios where we are in control, where the variables are predictable. Yet the greatest experiences, whether it be in climbing, traveling, in careers, in love, are when we let go, give ourselves over to the moment, and believe. Rito and I left our gear stashed inside our cave, hiked out of Z-Ben, and drove the 50-some miles to the beach town of Kalbari. Somewhere along the dirt road, Helga sputtered and heaved. The gear shift popped out a third. We stopped and let the engine sit for a few minutes while we discussed our options. Turning around meant risking a long 50-mile hike out without water. We could head for Kalbari. If need be, we could probably talk a local into driving us back out there to retrieve our gear. Just outside of town, the engine stalled. We pulled over, left Helga, and walked to the mechanic, who towed the car the six blocks back to his shop. Rito and I split a cheap motel room and watched torrential rain batter the windows. The next morning, the mechanic handed out a grim prognosis. Oil had leaked into two of the cylinder heads. I wouldn't make it back to Perth. I could buy some time by replacing the spark plugs. Maybe, he added, with a shake of his head. I bought four plugs and Helga hesitantly gurgled back to life. We drove away in fits and starts. There were dozens of reasons not to go back to the gorge. Helga could give in at any moment. After two days of constant terrain, the world would be a disaster. Getting stuck was almost a certainty. The car had no reverse. The possibility of a 50 mile hike back to town was a deterrent. Rightly or wrongly, I had come to equate that route with success. It seemed that I had to try one last time. Anything else would be an excuse. A blemish on an otherwise perfect journey across a continent. Rito understood. I had a car that could go 30 miles per hour. It didn't have to fire on four cylinders to make it 50 miles out to the gorge. If the motor failed, we would figure it out. We could sleep in the car if need be. We bought a few extra water jugs and food. The red gravel road had turned into the consistency of melted coffee ice cream. The engine moaned. I accelerated. The car fishtailed. Rito and I whooped and hollered, drunk with the giddiness that comes after committing to an ill-advised plan. Two days later, I managed to hang on, to link together a string of improbable movement into a journey. I could leave the Murchison. I could leave Australia. The next day, Rito and I hiked back to the car. I was certain that the drive-in had been the final straw, but when I tried the ignition, Helga roared to life as if to say, Heck yeah! I dropped it into neutral. Rito pushed the car backwards. I cranked the wheel. We started driving. But this time, a four-cylinder fired. Helga had to heal herself. A gap-toothed mechanic with a greasy bald spot offered me $75. It was late afternoon in Geraldton. Helga was running on two cylinders again, but this time it was worse. I had an easy out. I could take a bus back to Perth from here, scrap the car at the junkyard and buy the expensive train ticket back across the country. I thought momentarily, considered the $75, and then shook my head 
and turned back towards Helga. The rumbling engine scattered parrots on the telephone lines. I turned left onto the main drag, lined with shops apparent to close for the evening, a quick right towards the ocean. I passed the run-down caravan park with the dilapidated playground. In the long afternoon shadows, the playground looked like the reconstructed skeleton of something that once had been fun. I cut the steering wheel in a deep arc towards the ocean. The hill steepened, and Helga rattled, then lurched twice like a twitching body. And then, silence. For three months, this had been the moment I had been fretting over, coming to terms with, and preparing for. I sat there in the gathering darkness, unsure of what to do. I drained the oil into a gallon water jug. I watched it trickle from the engine, first in a steady flow that built into a growing pool, until it slowed into a trickle that cast ripples in the water bottle. Helga had died at the crest of a long, rolling hill that staggers right just as the cliff line cut off the road. It formed an almost perfect L, a sign warned of a sharp curve and a steep drop. There was an overlook with a picnic table notched with lovers' initials. I rummaged through the trunk for a bit of tubing opened the gas cap, knelt to the ground, and drew a deep breath until the gasoline almost touched my lips. I siphoned the last three liters of petrol from the tank. Then the coolant, a green, sticky substance with the consistency of syrup. Helga looked like a patient ready for surgery. Her bonnet cleaved open, her vital fluids coursed through tubes. What would she need in the afterlife? I left the old piton hanging from the rearview mirror. I excavated chains from the seat crack and stacked it in neat piles in the ashtray in case there were unforeseen tolls. I rummaged through my mind searching through the countless B-action flicks I had watched as a child. Just how exactly do you pin the accelerator to the floor and keep the wheels steady? Does it require jumping from the driver's seat in the final moments? I sat muttering to myself and finally decided that from the crest of the hill, the car should gather enough momentum to clear the few scraggly sand dunes just before the lip of the cliff. The front wheels rested just on the brink of the decline. The afternoon light had vanished. It was time. I opened the ice chest for a beer. With a length of climbing webbing, I girth-hitched the steering wheel in two places, tying each side to the corresponding side view mirror. I stood back, muttered something that may have passed for a prayer. I had made my peace with Helga. I took another swig of beer, leaned through the open window, and placed the half-full bottle in the dashboard cup holder. My mind lights up with one last brilliant idea. Before rational thought can take over, I'm dousing the bonnet with petrol. The air fills with the sweet odor of gasoline. A thin dribble beads down the left wheel well. My chest is heaving with exertion. I lean through the open window, release the parking brake, and put the gear shifter into neutral. Helga sits on the brink, and for the first time I'm considering the fact that this may be pushing the limits of what is reasonable or morally responsible. I squash that thought almost as quickly as it emerges. It's time to send Helga to that big garage in the sky. There's a book of redhead matches in the glove compartment from the Horsham dealership. What would the boys at Merson's Toyota say about this? Probably they'd grin, slap me on the back, and in a rare moment of car salesman candor, say, Surprise you made it this far, mate. The petrol flares with an unnerving amount of heat 
and I run in a moment of adrenaline back to the back bumper, dig my hip in, push. My feet slip in the sand. I push harder against the inertia. Heave, push, squirm, wiggle the car over the edge, and then I'm lying on my side as Helga lumbers forward. The petrol on the hood is going good now. Helga is on her way towards oblivion. The back wheels are threatening to fishtail, and the flames lay flat on the windshield like a pair of racing goggles. The front wheels crash hard into a dune, and for a moment Helga seems as if she's going to stop shy of the cliff. But once again, as if willing to end, Helga regains momentum. I can almost hear the engine roar back to life for one final push. Then Helga cartwheels into the void, a bright orange car wrapped in flame pirouettes into the moonless night. The rush of air almost extinguishes the flames. They turn a flickering blue. A second and a half of hissing wind on steel and then a crashing moan of twisting metal meeting the ocean at 100 miles per hour. The sound is menacing and lyrical, Helga's victory whoop. I run forward to the cliff edge to look down. Helga bobs like a bright orange fish indicator and then goes down. Outward ripples are the only markers of the resting place. The night returns to its casual pace, unshocked by the brief moment of mayhem. The faint smell of gasoline is the only marker of what has transpired here. I begin walking. Today's music was provided by Ghostland Observatory. Check them out at myspace.com backslash ghostlandobservatory. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Please email us. We'd love to hear from you. Dirtbagdiaries at earthlink.net. Dirtbag Diaries. All one word.